So this week is part two of what Jews believe. Part one was Rabbi Stuart Federo's website, and this was the argument we were talking about. We're just going to dive right in. This is the first link, and it was titled, Jews believe that one person's that one person cannot atone for the sins of another. And for those who are either not here last week or need a little refresher, the summation of his argument is in the gray box. And I'll read it once more. Uh, well, actually, I'll summarize the summary. Because it's not really in short, it is it? It is not. So, in short, <laughs> the Bible is clear and it is consistent. One person cannot die for the sins of another. And then he goes on to quote Exodus 32, 30-35, which is the incident with Moses and the golden calf. And he offers himself, Lord, forgive them, but if not, blot me out, please. And he says that God rejects that. And then he quotes uh, Exodus, or excuse me, uh, Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31 and Deuteronomy 24, 16b. By the way, he doesn't quote the whole verse, and we made a big point on that last week. So this is his argument. And the point that we made last week was he wrote at the bottom of that particular page of his website the following. In a newer technique, some Christians are now quoting rabbinic writings to make it seem as if the rabbis accepted this concept of vicarious atonement. That is, that one person can atone for the sins of another. However, even if several respected rabbis did agree with this idea, we, we must still go by what the Bible states. And the Bible states in no uncertain terms, Deuteronomy 24, 16b. And so the first week we said, okay... We're going to take them up on the challenge. We're not going to quote a single rabbi. We're not going to quote a single commentator. We're just going to walk through the text. If we come to the same conclusions that Rabbi Federer does, we'll amend our ways. But we found that Rabbi Federer's arguments were either completely misguided, irrelevant, or lacking in substance. <laughs> but uh, he's a good... He's got a good mind, to be completely candid. He's, a, he's got a good understanding of what it means to be an anti-missionary. This is <laughs> <laughs> and so this week is we're going to say, okay, we're going to see what do the rabbis say? What are the, who are these several respected rabbis, quote-unquote? And if they agree with us, first of all, should we even be talking about the rabbis is the first question. Yes, sir. The thing that just cracks me up about this particular statement is it seems like the first rabbi that's going sola scriptura, right? Right? So well, even if the rabbi even if there are some rabbis who may have agreed to this, we have to disregard them and just stick with what the text says. Yeah, and we saw that and it did not it did not fare well for the argument, but we're gonna see it even further today. So the question that we need to ask, should we even be referencing the rabbis? And for this, I would like to have a lot of participation. We're going to be diving into the Bible, yeah, but we're going to be talking about the rabbis. But I'd also like to have opinions being tossed about instead of me just spieling up here. Because on, in this room, we may have a general consensus of whether or not we should be quoting the rabbis. But for all the people who are maybe generally affiliated with the Torah or listening who aren't really a part of being at Bellatora, they may not be so convinced. And they may say, okay, even if the rabbis do agree with you, Taylor, on some points, or agree with your argument, they're irrelevant. They're not a part of Christianity, they don't know the apostolic writings, and they don't know Yeshua, so why are we even talking about them? Before we begin, let's, let's think about that. Do I have any preliminary responses to why you should or should not 
in quoting the rabbis to bolster your argument. Feel free to play the devil's advocate, by the way. I would open by saying that rabbis of the past, in fact, I would go so far as to say our sages of blessed memory um, spent the vast majority of their time either working to feed their families or studying the scriptures. If there's any people of the word that I would want to look to, it's those who have dedicated their lives not only to preserving it, but studying it and attempting to follow its directives. But the... Oh, sorry. Oh. Yes, sir. I, I have an analogy of my opinion of the rabbis, and there's a book out there called The 4-Hour Workweek, written by Tim Ferriss. Brilliant guy, very smart, but his worldview and the purpose of his book is to give you more time for partying and doing whatever you want. But that doesn't negate the fact that there are tons and tons of principles in that book that can be applied to our worldview. And that, that's how I'm, that how I view the rabbis, is that what they're saying, maybe they're, what they're thinking about or uh, implying might be a little off or, or some, something that they state, but the actual substance of it can be applied directly to what we believe in the apostolic scriptures and, and our belief in Yeshua as well. Fair enough. Uh, okay, you, you, uh, you, uh, sorry, Josh, 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 if, if God can use a donkey, how much more so can he use a sage? A great deal of our understanding of Messiah comes through the uh, the teachings of, of the rabbis right. and the church fathers, you know, especially. They wouldn't, a lot of Christianity today, and especially in the, in the writings of the Tanakh, a great deal of that would be you know, clear as mud to the, the modern Christian scholars without the, the, the pouring over the tomb and the tones of the Bible and, and the, the hours of love uh, spent in researching scriptures. So it's, it's from them that we get a great deal of our understanding of Messiah. Okay. I, one thing that I've uh, observed is that for who take the view that the rabbis are, you know, are irrelevant or don't really have much to contribute for because you know, they don't believe in Messiah. One thing I've observed is there's <coughs> typically a presupposition uh, that if they weren't, uh, if they didn't, you know, in some way publicly acknowledge the person of Yeshua. That therefore, everything they're writing and everything they're saying was intentionally directed against him. In other words, but but the reality is, especially the farther back in the history of uh, of our people that you go, when they're you know the, the Mishnah, even even the even most of you know even the Talmud, they're writing that in common. Commenting and so forth, and they had, you know, Yeshua, the person of Yeshua was typically not even in view. So to to somehow 
construe in hindsight that everything they wrote or said was directed intentionally against him, I think is just a fundamental. It's 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 just fundamentally flawed. It's it's really projecting backwards, you know, um, and assuming something wasn't there. So I'm going against everything I actually believe. I'm going to put on my narrow-minded and slightly anti-Semitic hat right now. Oh, and throw out... Um, I don't personally own this hat. I'm borrowing it from somebody else. And throw out... Wait a minute. I thought First John says that you don't need any man to teach you because the, you have the Holy Spirit. And these men don't believe in Yeshua so they don't have the Holy Spirit. If even the prayers of the wicked are an abomination, then how much more should we be scared of what they're telling us about the Bible? A lot in there. Sounds rock solid to me. <laughs> pretty, pretty solid. Yes, sir. So let me see if I can just deconstruct some of the hooey. Because I'll So, so the the word of God tells me that the natural man cannot keep the Torah. In fact, he cannot even understand it. And yet, these rabbis not only understood it, but kept it. So, there must be something going on there. So. Maybe we should at least, as the Master said, look at what they say, and maybe not necessarily what they do. Right. So that's what we're going to do. Uh, we're going to look at the teachings of the rabbis and say, all right, are these teachings for our position, or are they completely, is the Talmud completely consistent and rejecting what we actually believe about Yeshua? Because we believe that Yeshua, he's the righteous one. He can atone for the sins of another. So, does rabbinic literature uphold that or destroy that? So, we're going to look at that. But before we do, I'd like to recall, if you will, our lesson from last week, where I talked about is at Exodus 32, 30-35, and I was like, okay, Moses is going up and he's saying, I will atone. And we talked about, okay, this is the peel form, which means it's intensive and it's imperfect, blah, blah, blah. And you all banked on that being true. I banked on it being true. Can somebody please read what that says? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in Hebrew, Johnny is exactly right. But Johnny, you actually pronounced it like this. <laughs> you didn't you, pronounce it like that. You need to describe to those in Canada what you just said. Okay, did. so the first thing, I just showed the consonants of Genesis 1.1. But we, excuse me. But we all know that's how it's pronounced. But the only reason we know that is because we were used to looking at it, or at least pronouncing it, with not only the strong little dagash, which turns the bait from a va to a ba, but also all the other little dots along all the other little consonants. Those are vowels. I could do like Aaron Evie or like Moshav if you want. <laughs> but the point being that the fully inspired text by itself at the top gave you a string of letters without actually giving you the words, unless you have the uninspired vowel pointings. Beneath. So the vowel pointings are what actually define the word. So it's usually in the text of the scriptures, it's plain. There's no vowels. It's just the consonants. The Masoretes in the 10th, 10th century CE added all of these, but they didn't just do it randomly. They said, okay, this tradition has been passed down orally since Moses. So if you actually believe that Moses wrote, Bereshit bara Elohim et ha-shamayim et ha you are actually saying that you believe that what Moses 
had in the original text was preserved in Jewish oral tradition until the 10th century CE. That's what you're telling me. So imagine if you saw this, and you're like, okay, well, that's just, everyone knows Genesis 1-1. This is Genesis 1-1-10. Imagine none of the vowels there, none of the little dots. A lot could go wrong when you're trying to define these terms with no vowels. Let's just give one example. Bereshit bara Elohim. We know that's a technically a plural. How do you know it's not Elohim, like Mitzrayim or Yerushalayim, a dual? So there's actually two gods. You only know that because of Jewish oral tradition, passing that along to you from Moshe to the 10th century when it's finally written down. So if you have no problem telling me you believe in that, then at least it's consistent to say, okay, from maybe around Ezra to the 4th century CE, there's a time period of oral tradition. That's not as long a period as what you're saying. You believe that all of that should, all of the vowels should be there. And consider this also for the Gospels. When Yeshua lived on this earth, the events of his life were not written down in a book until about two centuries, or excuse me, two decades later. If ancient Israel at that time did not value any kind of oral transmission of any idea, then why would we expect the Jews of the first century to all of a sudden adopt such a mindset when transmitting reliably the Gospels? In other words, if the Jews of the first century did not care about oral transmission at all, then we have no hope for understanding that the Gospels that we have were reliably orally transmitted. Another idea along the same lines as it pertains to oral understandings. The, the example would be, okay, if Yeshua walked in the room and asked us or commanded us to do something, uh, are we going to say, well, Messiah Yeshua, that's fantastic. As soon as that gets written down, canonized, and put into scripture, <laughs> I'm on it. <laughs> or are you going to receive the oral, you know, the oral, you know, the talks there? And then, yeah. So, it's in other words, the point is this: that uh, to, to uh, I mean, even our written canonized scripture was um, a function of men having an understanding and I believe certainly guided by the hand of God, but men deciding what was going to be included in the canon and what wasn't. So even your written Bible was dependent and reliant on men deciding what the canon was made up of. But I believe God guided them in that process. Amen. So. I don't know which one of your stories. The, uh, it's, it's your birthday. It, they tell me that it is. <laughs> well, do they tell you that you're 27? 27. So, based on the oral tradition passed down by the Talmudim, we know much. I think much, much more about what happened in the Master's life than we know what happened in your life when you were seven with all the technology yeah. I have. That's entirely right? true. So, that's astonishing to me. They had no computers. They didn't even have a Blackberry. I mean, you know, nothing. <laughs> 20 years go by and then they write down and they say exactly what he said to people woman 
Where are your Where where are your accusers? Master, they have gone. Well, go and sin no more. You know that kind of thing. Well, wait a minute. We just wrote down a conversation that happened twenty years ago. I don't even know what you did twenty years ago. Yeah. Sure. And um, you know, going back to the whole vowel pointings here, the idea that you can read any of the Bible without Orthodox Jews is a lie. Because without the vowel pointings, without the vowel pointings, which were done by Orthodox Jews, not by a gaggle of Yeshua's disciples, not by the Church Fathers, but by straight up, completely kosher Orthodox Jews, they picked, they by based on tradition, they knew what the vowel pointings were supposed to be. Now, you might look at it and think, well, it's just harder to read with the vowel pointings. The problem is that Hebrew has many words that are identical without the vowel pointing. In fact, in some cases, the rabbis actually argue about it. Which word is this? Because this word is spelled exactly the same as this word. Is it this word? Is it that word? And there are other words that are so old in Hebrew, we don't even know what they are. Based on tradition, we think it's this. So your English translation depends on a Hebrew translation that is entirely influenced by Orthodox Jews. Without Orthodox Jews, you have no Tanakh. And without a Tanakh, you really have no Bible. For the the, uh, record, uh, those on this side of the couch believe that Yeshua's Talmudim were also completely kosher. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, Just to add to that, to the point Joshua was um, making alright so that's the point about Jewish oral tradition why are we talking about it well one you if you believe the Tanakh believe it yeah. oh it came back yeah. <laughs> here we are go like um, what I was no more comments <laughs> The Hebrew, in its, in, in its way it was originally handed down, didn't have the vowel pointers. The, the rabbis also use that, uh, particularly in the Midrashim, because they'll pick up on a word that's, that's traditionally understood to be pronounced this way and mean a certain thing. But they'll say, ah, but it could also mean this. Right. And they take that alternate meaning of the word with different vowels and they build a drosh around yeah. that from the very same text. So, um, so. And in some cases, lifting up Messiah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. All right, last comment that we got to move forward. So. But it's just important that we realize that, you know, as, a, as based on all these comments, that God. It, has this amazing ability to preserve his word, you know, by inspiring men, people. Um, you know, the legend has it that when they uh, translated the Septuagint from the Tanakh uh, into Greek, that when 70 guys did it, you know, they all came up with the exact same translation. How is that possible? Well, God obviously had his hand in it. Um, similarly, we have to see that, okay, through these vowel pointings and through the preservation of his word orally at or however it is written down that God has his hand in that and that's inescapable if, if we're going to be 
students of his word and believed in and followed these things, then they're, that's almost a, a given that, 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 that that's there. You know, on the level of prophecy and, and his divine revelation to, to men um, preserving his word. That's right. It's the nature of God. All right, so before we dive into what the rabbinic sources actually say, I just want to give a quick rundown on what we talked about last week. Just to kind of set the foundation, because the foundation is always scripture. And this foundation of the Talmud, the rabbis will say, is always scripture. The whole Talmud is just well, oversimplification, but commentary on scripture. So, three-point response if you met Rabbi Federer on the street about Exodus 32, 30-35. Moses offers himself as a sacrifice, sees no problem with remembering Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, as we saw in verses 13 and 14 of that chapter, and also offering himself. Moses sees no character conflict between that idea and God. God does not condemn Moses' offer, but he does not accept it. Why not? We need to ask why. It's not because God hates Moses' offer, which is because Moses may have been uh, somewhat short-sighted in his offer. God had a far longer-lasting, far-reaching plan to have a living mediator. And Israel was eventually atoned for, as we saw by Psalm 106. So Moses may have been the vicarious atonement, but not by death, rather through prayer or other intervention. Funny that you mentioned that. The Talmud... <laughs> We're, and we're just going to talk about the Talmud here, and then we're really going to get into it soon. The Talmud, but this is too good to pass up. And uh, when you see a B, Sota, B, whatever, that's Babylonian Talmud. If you see a Y, and then something else, that's Jerusalem Talmud. All right, so it's talking off with, uh, starting off with a question that's being raised in the same the Talmud, and I'm not as familiar with just dissecting the Mishnah Gemara and the Talmud from one another, so I'm just going to use Talmud as a catch-all phrase. Uh, our Yama said of Hananiah, essentially, why is Moses buried near Beth Peor? Well, to atone for the incident of Beth Peor. All right, I know that's just a wall of text, but <laughs> this is fascinating, so hang on to this with me while I read this. And this is the rest of the comments. The Holy One, blessed be he, said to him, so God speaking to Moses, is it only to receive the reward for obeying commandments that thou seekest? I ascribe it to thee as if thou didst perform them, as it is said. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bare the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, it is possible to think that the portion will be with the great of later generations, and not with the former generations. Therefore, there is a text to declare, and he shall divide with the strong. That is, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who were strong in Torah with commandments. In other words, Moses' portion is with those who came before, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, because he poured out his soul unto death, because he surrendered himself to die, as it is said, and if not, blot me, I pray thee, and was numbered with the transgressors. Because he was numbered with them who were condemned to die in the wilderness, yet he bare the sins of many, because he secured atonement for the making of the golden calf. And he made intercession for the transgressors, because he begged for mercy on behalf of the sinners in Israel, that they should turn in penitence. In other words, what we just talked about, and what Moses, in his success for atoning for Israel, is exactly what the Talmud 
talks about it. In fact, it even makes connections with Isaiah 53. Which, that was what leaped out to me immediately. I mean, I think it's really funny that, you know, traditionally, not to be overly critical, but a lot of Christians think that Jews never read Isaiah 53. <laughs> and this is actually, they, they just did Messiah's th- stuff with a man. With yeah, Moses, that's right. so it's not like well, because because the other the alternative view from a lot of anti missionaries is Isaiah fifty three has to be about Israel. Israel's the servant, and it's not talking about anything else. But you just have an entire passage saying it was a messianic figure that atoned for the sins of Israel. That's pretty cool. And then, so keep in mind, this is talking about okay, Moses is atoning for Israel, and he's being numbered with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is just what we saw in Exodus thirty two. Moses is saying, hey, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel in that case, and blot me out. And the rabbis pick up on this and say he was successful because he was heard through the righteous can't atone for the sins of the unrighteous. All right, and so moving on, we're just going to go through these quickly. Three points to remember if you read Rabbi Federer about Ezekiel 18 and Jeremiah 31. Rabbi Federer is assuming discontinuity between the Torah and the prophets. I don't like that. I'd rather have, dis- I'd rather have continuity between the two. Ezekiel and Jeremiah are correcting an overemphasis on either corporate sin or individual sin, bringing it back to the middle so that there's both. There's a corporate aspect to your actions and your father's actions, but that you're individually held responsible to be righteous in your own life and to set a new trajectory for the people of God. And lastly, asserting that Ezekiel is presenting an alternative method of atonement apart from the temple does not make sense of the remaining context of Ezekiel. Which is all about the temple. Amen. And lastly, Deuteronomy 24 is not about atonement, it's about social justice and blame shifting. So that's our summary of what we talked about last week. So let's dive in. The rabbinic text. What are we talking about? And so if you'll turn to Numbers, actually we're going to be in Numbers 20, 1 to 2. If I could have somebody read that, please. And while you're turning there, or Pete's already there, but the context is Numbers 19 is all about the red heifer. The ashes of the red heifer. And what do you need for an ashes of red heifer? Well, you need several things, but one, you need water. So keep that in mind. 21 and 2. 20 verses 1 and 2. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. And there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. Okay, so in Numbers... We know that we need water for a red heifer, but there is no water. So the rabbis comment in Talmud and Katan 28a, and sometimes you'll see Katan spelled with a Q, so it don't have to throw you. So said our Ami, wherefore is the account of Miriam's death placed next to the laws of the red heifer? To inform you that even as the red heifer afforded atonement for the ritual of its ashes, so does the death of, that's supposed to be the righteous, death of the righteous afford atonement for the living they have left behind. That's pretty plain. Mm-hmm. So the rabbis are picking up on, okay, you need atonement, you need water for the red heifer. There is no water, so the text has Miriam. That could be what they're thinking behind this text. So the rabbis are pretty explicit here. They don't try to hide it. The death of the righteous does atone for the living they have left behind. Moving forward, and I have somebody reading Numbers 20, 25 to 28. This is the same context, generally, of what we're talking about, same chapter. Who's got it? So Israel took all these cities, and Israel dwelt in all the cities of the Amorites, 
in Heshbon and all of its villages. For Heshbon was the city of Sihon, king of Amorites, who had fought against the former king of Moab, mm-hmm. and had taken all his, all his land in his hand. Wait, 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 I did not remember reading that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you must have over the message. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. 25. So Moses did as the Lord commanded, and they went up to Mount Hor in the sight of all the congregation. Moses stripped Aaron of all his garments and put them on Eleazar his son. And Aaron died there on top of the mountain. When Moses and Eleazar came down from the mountain. All right. So now we have the death of Aaron, and in the same context of the Talmud, Kitan twenty-eight a, it reads. Our Eleazar said, Wherefore is the account of Aaron's death closely followed by the account of the disposal of the priestly vestments? To inform you that just as the priest's vestments were means to effect atonement, so is the death of the righteous conductive to procuring atonements. So again, it's ex- explicit as can be. The death of the righteous indeed atones for the unrighteous. We're not done yet. It, it gets better from here. You think, oh, two, two comments from the Talmud... You're pretty set, but no. Yes, sir. I, I, just, I just think we should just take a second and recognize Rob, Eliel, Rob Eliezer and Rob, whoever the other guy was. Rob Hanani. Was it Hanani? Rob Ami. Right? These guys are not asking what the text says. They already know what the text says. Right. They're asking... Why is this with this? Right before this. Yep. But why is this right after that? Excellent questions that no one asks. That's amazing. They're already beyond what is this word, what is that word. Yep. Now they want to know why is this in this sequence? That's that's extraordinary to me. Sir. And to challenge Rabbi Federo's interpretation of some rabbis. Okay. Rabbi Rabbi Eliezer <laughs> isn't some rabbi, by the way. What? It's not a lightweight. It's no, not no. a lightweight. We're talking about a guy that almost any time you read the Talmud, you're going to see his name. Yeah. Like, he's one of the most commonly quoted guys in the entire Talmud. So when he says the death of the righteous can atone, provide atonement for others, that's like essentially saying... Judaism in, believes this. Game, saying, game over. Yeah. Let's go home. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 would, it would be the equivalent of, of saying something, you know, if, you, if you're quoting... George Washington is trying to summarize what the founding fathers believe. It's like this guy's really important. Yeah. Yeah. He's Wait. the Amma in Amarine. Okay. Yes, when, when we read the the, uh, the Birkin Avot, that's the guy. Yeah. Right? Who's, you know, you see the one with the cistern and the water never gets out, right? I mean, you read about it, we open the Birkin Avot with them talking about four special guys yeah. that are just top shelf. He's one of them. Yeah. All right, let's keep moving. All right, our Yoma, take a deep breath. We're going to keep diving in here to the Talmud. And so in the context of Yoma 42a, is a discussion about the what the Talmud calls the he-goat-to-be-sent-away, which is in connection with Yom Kippur. 
Like to have an account? Yeah, uh, sorry, said Yes. Where you send it off? Yes, uh, that's correct. So the discussion is talking about the weight of this and the weight of that, uh, one shekel this, and the length of uh, the strap of the heifer, all of this really minute stuff that is pretty important, I would think, because you want to know the details of this, and nobody else is asking it. So these guys are asking it. So there's two folks that are talking in this one. There's um, R. Simon Behalachta, and there's Rabbiya Be Kesi. So there's two guys talking. And so it says, R. Jeremiah of Ditti said to Rabina, they are not disputing in regard to the strap of the heifer, but instead to that the go to be sent away. So there's two rabbis, and they're about to come together to meet to dispute this certain aspect of the Higa to be sent, sent away. So they're going to meet on this specific day, and they've scheduled it. And then it reads, And on the day of their dispute, died Rabbiah Fei Kesi. As, and as a sign to remember this coincidence, so in other words, they're getting ready to talk about the Higa to be sent away, which provides atonement. Coincidentally, one of the men who's going to be talking about it dies on that day. To remember this, they say, the death of the righteous, uh, Rabbiah Big Kesi, obtains atonement, even as the he-goat to be sent away. So again, a little bit more of context to get into that, but again, it's plain. The Talmud agrees that the death of the righteous does make atonement for the unrighteous. And in this case, it's again, just to pre-emphasize, um, atonement needs covering, um, which can be have a lot of meanings. But the, this one's really powerful because the Hiko to be sent away in Yom Kippur is specifically related to the sins of the nation. Yeah. It's the not just nation, by the, way. the entire nation. It's not just the idea of like a covering for an event or for an incident or for one occasion. It's like it's like uh, it's not like this person is a good guy so he will suffer right now when a storm comes through. It's yeah. more the idea that like he affects forgiveness for the nation because of his death. Amen. Essentially. Moving forward, you're starting to know a pattern here. The Talmud seems to be pretty consistent. In the discussion of Shabbat 33b, it's talking, it's asking the question, why do certain diseases come upon people? Specifically, why do certain diseases come upon children? Specifically the disease of Kraut, which is inflammation of the larynx. Person. If you didn't know that, that's just silly. You should know that. No, I had to Google that. Um, so the question is specifically put forth, why, quote, why does this affliction commence in the bowels and end in the throat? In other words, why does it start in the stomach and then go here? And then several answers are given, and then another uh, question is asked, and Kraut, by the way, usually afflicts children. So it's... in. At least in those times, it was a common disease, not a common, but it was a disease usually, if it's found at all, found in children. And then it reads, Our Yosef, son of our Shemaiah, said, When there are righteous men in the generation, the righteous are seized by death for the sins of the generation. When there are no righteous in the generation, school children are seized for the generation. So in other words, normatively, the righteous are seized. For the, for the sins of the generation. If there are no righteous, then children who are presumed innocent in this scenario affect the atonement in the place of the righteous. So 
what's presupposed here is that in every other situation, the righteous do affect atonement for the unrighteous, being consistent with what's come before. Sir, um, and are you going to get to the um, Lamed Bab? The what? The Lamed Bab. No. Okay. Then we are now. The 33 guys. 36 guys. Traditionally, it is believed that there are 36 men who are like super righteous, top shelf righteous. Some might be here right now. And basically, 20 of them. But if you think you're right now. And basically, (laughs) those 36 guys maintain the world. In every generation. Like, if those guys weren't there, the world was wicked enough, it would be destroyed. But because of those 36 guys, there's always a new set of 36 for each generation, the world is preserved. Like, that's the idea. When they talk about righteous or seized for the sins of the generation, it's that kind of concept. It's like, these guys keep the whole world in existence because they're here. And and this part gets really interesting here. Rabbi Epstein, who, in at least the version of the, the Talmud that I have, he's the editor of the particular version of the Talmud I have. And he has a footnote to Shabbat 33b, and he writes this. This concept, or excuse me, this is not to be confused with the doctrine of vicarious atonement, which is rejected by Judaism. (laughs) And I have to just wonder, I I searched, he doesn't mention it on any of these before. He doesn't mention it with Miriam, with Aaron, with Yoma. He he chooses Shabbat to to put his little footnote here. And I have to ask why. If Shabbat is evidently not talking at all about vicarious atonement, then shouldn't it be obvious? Obviously, either this ver- the reference in the Talmud is talking about vicarious atonement, and he's got to cover his bases for whatever reason. To some point. Or it's been used in that way, right. which presupposes number one, that it's, yeah. it, it lends itself to that idea. Do you see that in your, your like any kind of Jewish publication of like a Tanakh or something? There's always got to be some footnote related to Isaiah 53, or especially Psalm 22, you know, they cast lots from my clothing, yeah. and pierced me, you know, and everything like that, so it's, it's very just reactional. like, it, it is, so so they're like, okay, this is, this is clearly something the Christians are going to use, or these, these Jesus believers, so we have to cover it up and say, no, it isn't, so it's, 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 it's clearly yeah. something that they're, and, and it's important having a reaction to. the timeline here, because Shabbat 33 would have been laid down sometime in the 3rd, 4th, maybe 5th century common era, right? Rabbi Epstein is editing it in English now, right? In the last (laughs) 70 years, right? So you've got a lot of water that's coming out of the parade. A lot of wall, too, boy. Uh, And so Epstein is obviously footnoting a parting line that has evolved much later. That's right. And you may be asking, who's Rabbi Schechter? Rabbi Schechter is a gentleman who helped start conservative Judaism back in the early 20th century. He died in 1915. And in his work, some some aspects of rabbinic theology, pages 31, excuse me, pages 310 to 311, he writes the following. Listen to this. This is amazing. The atonement of suffering and death is not limited to the suffering person. The death of the righteous atones just as well as certain sacrifices, with reference to Katan 28a, which we just quoted, and Shabbat 33b, which here we are. 
quote, there are also applied to Moses the scriptural words, and he bore the sins of many, Isaiah 53, 12. Because of, because of his offering himself as an atonement for Israel's sin with the golden calf, being ready to sacrifice his very soul for what Israel, when he, when he said, and if not, blot me out, I pray thee, of thy book, that is, out of the book of the living, which thou hast written, Exodus 32. This readiness to sacrifice for Israel is characteristic of all the great men of Israel, the patriarchs and the prophets acting in the same way, while all, whilst also some rabbis would, on certain occasions, exclaim, Behold, I am the atonement for Israel. Mm. Who's right? <laughs> You've got two rabbis with three opinions, so... Yes, sir. <laughs> it's also important to remember, um, especially when you're dealing with uh, commentaries or groups that want to argue against what normative Judaism actually believes, Rashi... Uh, is very famous, I think, for, at times, really attacking Christian viewpoints on certain scripture passages in his overall commentary of the entire Tanakh, which, by the way, is quite impressive. Um, the reason that he and much later rabbis are so reactionary, um, Rashi, and other rabbis are much more reactionary, is because they are living in an era from where they're being killed by where they're being killed by Christians, and more importantly, they're being forced to debate Christians. And that's really important because from about the end, right around the 1,000 year mark and a little further, mm -hmm. Christians kept roping them in, say, we're going to debate, we're going to argue with you, you have forced conversions, yeah, you have a true. lot more aggressive evangelism on Jews. And when I say aggressive, I don't mean like street preaching, I mean like to believe this or die. And so the Jews like right now. had to have a response. They needed to be able to argue back. So it became normal for some Jewish argument to basically say, whatever Christians use is not what we believe. Yeah. And that's what you're getting from people like Rabbi Epstein. They're still buying that line, which is unfortunate, because when Jews talk to Jews, not to Christians, then they're much more open to basically saying the same thing we are. Yeah, which is what the Talmud's opinion when it's an in-house discussion. Which right. is what the Talmud is. Yeah, exactly, sir. I was just going to answer what Joshua shared, in that that's what we see with uh, Ramban and all of Christianity. Oh, yeah, that's mm -hmm. not this well. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that's Charlo, anyway. Yeah, Pablo, I mean. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> right. I, I was just going to say, based on what Joshua was saying, and going back to what we originally said, like, should we be reading the rabbis, it's clear that the rabbis aren't necessarily going to be the source of our theology or our our spiritual views as much as they are halakha. I mean, so it's just, that can be true at the same time as... Rabbi's writings being, but this is not a pretty theological point. Yeah, I would actually, I would, I would throw in my my thought on that. I feel like um, one of my favorite, one of the most powerful passages in the entire Torah about Messiah is given by Balaam. Balaam, Balaam <laughs> is scum. He is wicked. He is a terrible prophet who uses divination <laughs> to intervene in spiritual matters to try and connect with the Holy One. Blessed be He. But God himself actually pours his spirit on him. By the way, this is contradicting my earlier point about the unrighteous not having the spirit. <laughs> Bilam gets the spirit of God in that moment to speak powerful prophecies about Messiah. So I think that what we should do when we're reading the Talmud about Messiah and using Jewish references, sorry yeah. I was over-aggressive there, I'm just excited, um, <laughs> is, to, is to recognize that the sages actually can be dead on on Messiah, 
And the, ba- the our baseline should be, what does the scripture say? When the, when the sages parallel that, let's use them. Let's keep studying them and let's keep pulling them because they've been studying it a lot longer than we have. And ironically enough, oftentimes, the sages actually are the ones who are finding the messianic passages in the Bible and saying, ooh, this. this is Messiah. And we're going, yeah, yeah, it is. I like that one. Justin. I would agree with these last two men and summarize by saying, isn't it right that we should look at what the sages argued about, how they argued, and what conclusions to which they came? I can look at their theology. If they rejected Messiah, I can reject that thought. But to see what they were arguing about, why they were arguing as you're as you're pointing out to us here, we're not talking about who the Messiah is. We're talking about the fact that righteous men in their generation are seeds. How so? These things that they're arguing about, yeah. and how they're arguing, I think, are what we as Tzadikim need to learn. Yeah. All right. Woo! Before we dive into the Zohar, let's take a deep breath. This side of the room's been pretty quiet. No heckling, no... What's that? Actually, no. The Zohar. Period. (laughs) End of story. (laughs) This is all we're allowed to read. (laughs) Will this make us go blind? Because I may have to leave the room. So, you may want to not be studying to work for at least 35 years. Not happening with the Zohar. Young people, out of the room. (laughs) All right, so, for... In all seriousness, some people who are listening may say, all right, the Talmud, fine, I understand that. There may be a few references you can pull. But the Zohar, that's out there, is it not? Oh, yeah. Some? Some of it is, to be sure. Uh, But I've read some Christian commentaries that are worse. (laughs) 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 All right. Uh, Is it Rob Bell? Uh, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> Quotes from Zohar to uh, 212a. As long as Israel... Sorry, go ahead. You might just clarify for the people... What is the Zohar? Might not know what the Zohar is. Okay, somebody want to give us... Maybe this room who has an idea. What is the Zohar? It's not a person, by the way. It's not, it's not a title. It's a collection. Pete. Is it, I, I know it might not be exactly right. But I was thinking it was uh, commentary on the Torah, written medieval, sorry, a little later than medieval. Just keep swinging that a little, little, little <laughs> more toward <laughs> middle eight. That way? Yeah. 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 yeah so no. No, I still don't care. Talk to you. It's not true. It was. It was. The, the Zohar is the holy book, if you will. The revelations of the first Lubavitcher Rebbe who was in. Not Poland, but uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't remember. Lithuania is right. <laughs> so, so he, he was he's the first of a dynastic uh, reign, if you will, of of ultra orthodox Hasidim uh, who were mystics. The yeah. Zohar is his uh, his his teachings and his very esoteric, very deep 
very like you read it and you think this isn't really that weird, but the explanations, or some of it, like it's really not that weird, but the explanations of which and the, the deeper meanings are very, very weird. Uh, but but just to add to that though, the mystical um, understandings of the Torah, according to Judaism, go way back. I mean, are much prior to right. um, yeah. to this. Um, this is the well. I forget the right Shimon Bar Yochai, right. uh, who is who is a contemporary of, uh, well, maybe a little bit after Shaul and the disciples, but like first century common era. Uh, Shimon Bar Yochai is uh, uh, understood to have really taught and passed on a lot of the mystical understanding of the Torah, which then later. You know, much later, yeah. it's not so long. The Arizal, I think, is, is to whom yes. Peter is referring, and that is definitely before 1500, which is why he's on the well, tablet. This oh, is, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and it's not Right. So the, the Arizal, or Rabbi um, Zuria, Isaac, Isaac Zuria, um, Luria, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the Arizal, he's he's the guy that you know pretty much started Kabbalah. Now Kabbalah is pretty much the verb or practice of the Zohar, right? And there's really big argument going on within Judaism about did this guy or someone prior to him and, and they've got a name for the guy, did he write it then, or did he simply transcribe what was written back as Greg said back in the days of Rabbi Akiva and, and uh, Shimon Bar. So, the bottom line is, today we categorize this as Judy, Jewish mysticism, and it is exemplified most in the joyful, extraordinary, life-giving blessed life of the original uh, uh, Rebbe there and I think that we see in our in our own age people like Madonna and others you know looking back and going whoa whoa Jewish mysticism I love that cool stuff you know that and a you know and a, and a hot dog you know a pork hot dog with some some slaw is great there they're just freaky, so we need to ignore what they're saying. Right? Ignore the misuse. And, yeah, and the way they're playing it. And, and I think that rabbinic mysticism is something that we should take cautiously. Right. And, and I think that we should not ignore the rabbi's warnings. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. That what we're delving in here are the guys that already finished memorizing the Talmud. Yeah. <laughs> not just studying it. Memorizing, memorizing the Talmud. And then, and then memorizing the, the, the Talmud that came afterwards, that's the guys that are now looking at the Zohar and saying, these guys have some freaky, wonderful, awesome, sometimes really kooky ideas, but gosh, so a lot of it seems to line up with what we believe. I, I just looked it up real quick, and it's attributed to Moses yeah, twelve hundred. And, and okay. they thought he was. And they thought he was he lying says, because there was nothing they could prove. 
he says that this stem comes Galeon. from the fact that Mr. Upper was saying. Gotcha. So, from, I think it's the <coughs> And the Ari is right after him, before the Kimura. Because he studied uh, it. Uh, so, and which became the practice of Kabbalah made popular by the Arzal, right? Right. Made accessible to the masses by Arzal. It's interesting that um, that, for example, uh, the, the the Orthodox Messianic Rabbi um, out in Everett. Uh, you know, he testified that he lives in Israel. He testified that he personally knows a couple hundred Orthodox Sephardic rabbis that are believers in the side of Yeshua. And correct me if I'm wrong, because you literally made a statement, but um, the vast majority of those um, individuals are Kabbalists. They, they practice Kabbalah, they study Zohar, all the other texts, right? So, now, how they, how they came to to know and believe in Messiah Yeshua <coughs> while they're studying the Zohar and didn't go blind, <laughs> you know, is, you know, should be a watchword for us. All right. Quote from Here the Zohar. As long as Israel dwelt in the Holy Land, the rituals and the sacrifices they performed removed all those diseases. It's in a discussion talking about various diseases that come upon the world. It removed all the diseases from the world. Now the Messiah removes them from the children of the world. From the Messiah texts. From the Messiah texts. <laughs> That's quoted from there. Pretty plain. Zohar is explicit here about the Messiah removing it. And we're going to start to see a trend as we move forward about when the Messiah removes. I have a question. When were they talking about this is now the since the destruction of the uh, town, the tabernacle and the uh, temple, since we're no longer in the land and we don't want to yeah. And just for those who might be listening to all this vicarious atonement stuff and thinking, okay, I get Yeshua does that, but I don't know that I understand the rest of it. A really interesting text in First John is illuminated by this concept. Because in 1 John, I think it's chapter 2, it says that he's talking about Yeshua. It says he provides atonement, and not for us only, but also for the entire world. Right. Which, read in English, exempt from all of the Jewish background, is like, what is this even talking about? Yeshua's death saves the whole world? Everybody goes to heaven? Like, what's he even saying? It's been a verse of much controversy. But in this context, it makes an enormous amount of sense. In other words, Yeshua's death uh, accomplishes atonement for our sins on an eternal level. But on a maybe maybe more physical level, if nothing else, his death also allows the world to continue to exist. It's like the entire world actually benefits from Yeshua's death. Yeah. All right, next quote. The children of the world are members of one another, and when the Holy One desires to give healing to the world, he smites one just man among them. And for his sake, that is, the sake of the just man, heals all the rest. Whence do we learn this? From the saying, he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities, Isaiah 53, 5. In other words, by the letting of his blood, as when a man bleeds his arm, there was healing for us, for all the members of the body. In general, a just person is only smitten in order to procure atonement for a whole 
generation. Wow. wow. Like you said, members of the body. Like yeah, if Paul doesn't come to mind when you read that, holy cow. That's Hermes there. Which leads you to believe that the Zohar does have its formulation beginnings, whatever it may be, back in the days where, where Greg was saying, right. right after, right around the days of Messiah. Whether it's from those or from a common denominator between the two, it's or very clear. Or it from Paul, who is the author of the Zohar. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I said exactly before he... <laughs> <laughs> so, That's and, a different class. <laughs> so this is very explicit, and it's very plain, and we should all be taking a lot of notes on in our minds... Wow, that sounds very similar. That's a very good analogy to what we're talking about. And there's the citation if you want it later. Uh, the second one, you can get it. I didn't put it on there immediately because that's a doozy. All right. Moving on. We've got to finish quickly here. Midrash Rabbah. The Exodus Rabbah Terumah. Terumah is the name of the portion from which this is found. And Exodus Rabbah. has to do with uh, offerings. The Debah Terumah. Sorry? Is it about offerings? Correct. Moses said to God, Will not the time come when Israel shall have neither tabernacle nor temple? What will happen with them then? The divine reply was, I will then take one of their righteous men and give him as a pledge on their behalf so that I may pardon all of their sins. Pretty plain. It's getting kind of old now, isn't it? It sounds like our rabbi just lost out. Maybe he doesn't know Judaism. <laughs> Alright, next one. Uh, so, interestingly enough, we, we've got it settled. Okay, the righteous can't tell the sins of their unrighteous. It's starting now where we're starting to see a trend of after the temple and the tabernacle. When was that? It was right around when Yeshua came, was it not? Something to think about. I'm not trying to prove anything there. And then Leviticus Rabbah, 2012. Leviticus Rabbah is a little bit different. It's not necessarily an extra-typical commentary. It's more of just a collection of homilies. And so it says here, what happened before we go? Rabbi Hayab ben Abba said, the sons of Aaron died on the first day of Nisan, which is in the spring. Why then does the Torah mention their death in conjunction with the Day of Atonement? It talks about it in Leviticus 16.1, which is the Day of Atonement. Which is in the fall. Which happened in Tishrei. It is to teach that just as the Day of Atonement atones, so the death of the righteous atones. <laughs> it's getting old now. Yeah. I think we've got the point. That's rabbinic literature. That's what the evidence says. So that's the Jewish sources. What it says about the death of the righteous atoning for the unrighteous. We've got one more thing to go here. What do you guys think? Amen. Amen. Yes, we agree. Amen and amen. All right. No wonder so many Jews got saved. All right, we've got a couple minutes here. Second Temple literature, what is that? Well, it's broadly speaking, I date it from about 150 BCE to 50, based upon my studies. You'll get a much broader range from liberal scholars going way beyond that into the CE range, especially when you get the translations into Greek and Syrian and all of these things. So uh, that's when I usually did it. And you'll notice that during this time, 150 BCE is the most Hellenized period, at least the threat of Hellenization, persecuted period, and factious period. Mm -hmm. There are so many factions of Judaism all vying for the populace's 
understanding. So this is a very turbulent time of Judaism. We need to keep that in mind when we read the apostolic scriptures, by the way, that the background of it is a time when it's very... Israel is at a very huge crossroads with the pagan world. 1, 2, 3, and 4 Maccabees. The Maccabees, we all know the story of the Maccabees, we ever celebrated Hanukkah. 1, 2, 3, 4 Maccabees are books written in between this time period. And the two that we have are 2 Maccabees, which is about 105 BCE, and 4 Maccabees, which generally speaking could go a lot of ways, just considering the turn of the era, so around zero. 1, 2, and three Macca 4 Maccabees each accounts the story of the Maccabees from a little bit of a different theological angle. Some are a little bit more historical, some are a little bit more theological. Some include details that others don't. That should give you a reminder of four other books we have mm -hmm. in the same, uh, they act in the same way. <laughs> 4 Maccabees is the one that's very interested in theology, so we're going to talk about that. And it's, it's especially interested in not just the political aspects, but the theology of the martyrs and what that means for the nation of Israel. All right, we've got two stories we're going to go through. One, the story of Eleazar. This is an old man. He's an old man who is being threatened with death unless he eats kashrut, unless he eats unkosher stuff. And this is the story. I'll read just a little bit of it. Eleazar, one of the principal scribes, a man already well stricken in years and of noble countenance, was compelled to eat swine's flesh. But he, welcoming death rather than life with pollution, advanced of his own accord the instrument of torture, affording an example of how men should come forward who have the courage to put from them food which even the natural love of life they dare not taste. So in 2 Maccabees 6.31, says this, thus he too died, leaving his death as an example of nobility and a memorial of virtue, not only to the young, but also to the great body of his nation. Before we begin, move on, could somebody turn to First Peter, please, as we go on. So, Eleazar dies as an example for the nation. And then we've got four Maccabees, says this, then binding his arms on either side, they scourged him a herald standing and shouting over out against him, obey the orders of the king. In other words, just eat it. Just eat the pork. <laughs> but the great soul and noble man, Eleazar, in very truth, was more, no more moved in his mind than if he were just being in a dream. So in other words, he might as well be sleeping. He's not convinced to eat the swine's flesh. Yea, the old man, keeping his eyes steadfastly raised to heaven, suffered his flesh to be torn by the scourges till his blood was bathed till his body was bathed in blood and his sides became a mass of wounds and then in 4 Maccabees 6 28 it says this this is Eleazar speaking to God as he's dying be merciful unto thy people and let our punishment, that is the martyrs let our punishment be a satisfaction in their behalf make my blood their purification and take my soul to ransom their souls <laughs> and he dies shortly thereafter. So, could somebody read First Peter one eighteen? Knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, 
as of a land unblemished and spotless with water on the side. Okay, I wonder if I had the right verse there. That's nice though. It sounds good. Sure, I like the blood. Good book. And it's Peter. <laughs> Whatever verse I was referencing, it's talking about how the suffering of the Messiah proves an example for us. Let's try second or excuse me, first Peter two twenty one. Maybe this one will be ready. Who's got that? <clears throat> for to this you have been called because Messiah also suffered for you, leaving an example so that you might follow in his steps. Okay, so the one eighteen is the he died as a blood atonement of First Peter. And the two twenty one to twenty two is an example for you. So we see the same concept of Peter. No doubt Peter was most very likely familiar with the Maccabee stories. Everyone was, and he almost certainly was familiar with this particular story. That's true. Amen. All right, so now we have the second story, the story of the mother and the seven sons. And Anna. Right? Yeah. Uh, I don't remember her name. That's most likely correct. So 2 Maccabees 7 1. It also came to pass that seven brothers and their mothers were arrested and shamefully lashed with whips and scourges by the king's orders, that they may be forced to taste the abominable, the abominable swine's flesh. One of them spoke up for the others and said, Why question us? What would thou learn from us? We are prepared to die sooner than to transgress the Torah of our fathers. So that's the historical aspect of it. And then four Maccabees. And one brother said, Brother, be of good cheer. And another, bear it out nobly. So they're encouraging each other. And another, recalling the past, remember what stock ye are, and at whose fatherly hand Isaac, for righteousness' sake, yielded himself to be a sacrifice. And each of them, together, looking at each other brightly and boldly, said, With a whole heart we will consecrate ourselves unto God, who gave us our souls, and lend us our bodies to the keeping of the Torah. At the end it says, Remember that ye, for the sake of God, have come into the world and have enjoyed life, and therefore ye owe it to God to endure all pain for his sake. And here's the other part. Remember, Isaac has just been recalled to yield himself up. Just as our forefather Abraham made haste to sacrifice his son Isaac, the ancestor of our nation, and Isaac, seeing his father's hand lifted against the knife, did not shrink. So, Isaac gave himself, and Abraham offered himself. We have a perfect picture in this of Yeshua giving himself, and the Father offering Yeshua. And then here's the last point. Here's the summary of this story. Listen to this. And these men, therefore, having sanctified themselves for God's sake, martyred for God, not only have received this honor, but also the honor that through them the enemy had no more power over our people, and the tyrant suffered punishment, and our country was purified, they having, as it were, become a ransom for our nation's sin, and through the blood of these righteous men and the propitiation of their death, the divine providence delivered Israel that was before delivered Israel that before was evil and treated. Amen. Amen. So the pre-apostolic writings agree, as do the post-apostolic writings agree. That is the Talmud and the Zohar. The death of the righteous atones for the unrighteous. Amen. Amen. I, I wonder if Rabbi Federer or any other rabbi who is trying to uh, give, give someone counsel on, on, like, on how to explain suffering in the world and, and the death.
medical medicines and all that, they would definitely have to use um, these verses and these concepts as kind of evidence to show, well, that, you know, suffering is not because God's bad, it's because there's his plan to make, you know, even the righteous innocent people suffer for everyone's benefit. But as soon as you try to bring it into, you know, a, outside of that context to make it from a trying to defend Messiah, then they'll, they'll forget all of those arguments, I would assume. The question has to be asked if Rabbi Federer really believes what he put on his website. Yeah. I'm not going to say one way or the other, but it does seem that if you really believed what Rabbi Federer wrote on his website, you're not a Jew. Because Judaism is very plain. Well, you can't be a rabbi. <laughs> Evidently, you can. <laughs> so, one of the things I think, just to go back to your original question on listening to rabbis, that's kind of, I think it's kind of cool. You just went through a long list of rabbinic sources that argue that the righteous atone for the unrighteous, including the death of the righteous atoning for the sins of the unrighteous, which I think is even more specific. Um, which is exactly what we believe with our Master mm-hmm. Messiah. Yeah. It's, it's very fruitful to remember that they didn't get that. They may have read the Gospels, but quite, at least most people would argue that they did not. They got that from reading the Tanakh, from studying the Tanakh in detail that many of us have never even imagined doing, to digging into the Hebrew, into looking at gematria, context, the way words are spelled, and deriving from that the ideas that you just presented. So when we talk about listening to rabbis, that's what they're getting. They're spending so much time in the scriptures, they're ending up with the theology at times, maybe more often than not, of the apostolic scriptures without the apostolic scriptures. The the apostles, remember, were considered unique because they understood stuff that only the learned, studious men of their generation got. But that doesn't mean that the learned, studious men of their generation didn't get it too. Yeah, and I think that that's what we have to remember when we're looking at at, the, at these rabbis. That these guys, these you know, sages of blessed memory, have learned have have not only learned but are presenting theology that is very much based in scripture and is supportive and helpful for us. I, I agree with with Joshua that reading these rabbis, whether they believe in Messiah Yeshua or not, are teaching principles that we certainly agree with yep. and support the vicarious death of our Messiah. Amen. But I would go so far as to say, with your excellent presentation of the poor scholarship that Rabbi Federer has, that even studying Rabbi Federer, who does not believe Messiah, Yeshua, is the Messiah, and who does not believe in vicarious death of, you know, atones for the righteous, or for the sinner, even reading a rabbi who doesn't believe any of this, I am blessed and have seen Messiah by simply looking at the alternative rabbis. One other comment, just going back to the Zohar and the whole concept of mysticism, you know, mystical writings. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people need to be kind of wigged out about that. (laughs) But, you know, but I would would say um, there is mysticism all through the the Tanakh and the Apostolic writings. Yeah. I mean the you know the, the the visions, the things that some of the prophets had. Um, Peter Paul had visions. I mean even even in the gospel, in the Gospel of John, right, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, he was in the beginning, all things came from him. I mean 
if that's not mysticism, you know, I mean, if that's not mystical, right? I'll describe it that way. I mean, so, um, so I think, you know, these certain words have become buzzwords, or they've become, you know, Kabbalah has become like this four-letter word. Yeah. But I think it's it's the same thing like with Pharisee, right? I mean, Pharisee is a four-letter word to so many people. Yeah. But I think if if you stop and kind of sift through all of the hype and just kind of really take a an objective, you know, an objective look at it, I think it's it's like anything, the Talmud or Midrashim or whatever. There's there's a lot of good insight, yeah. and sure, there's some weird stuff and stuff that's kind of out there, and you know, you, you kind of you kind of push that aside, but you can't ever throw things out of that Amen. Any other comments? Decide. I know you're just dying to say something. Wow, I, I, have, a, I have a devil's advocate uh, question here. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, say for instance, in like uh, you take like John five towards the end, and she was talking to I believe it was Pharisees or a group about you know people basically reading Moses or you know but not necessarily seeing him or believing in him. Um, how would you or like maybe even Paul in Romans ten talking about people trying to seek you know their own righteousness outside of God's righteousness and and you know kind of playing into 10-4, where it says, like, how Messiah Yeshua is the goal of the Torah. Right. <clears throat> what would you say, then, to those who, um, or what would you say to, to those who take the, the stance of, well, uh, wouldn't they, I mean, would it just be a veil that was over many of their eyes that don't actually saw Yeshua or did not believe his words, you know what I mean, in, in that kind of context? Well, with the veil aspect, we do have to understand Paul's argument and we're talking specifically about Paul's veil use of the veil yeah in first Corinthians or well I guess I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to figure out what would we attest to all of those or you know some of those who read the Torah or sages that have dived and, and you know back and forth and still are unable to see or believe in Yeshua's words like he would say in in yeah. John five, um, what you know would, would we just cause it, or, you know, uh, test it to that partial hardening, or you know what I mean? I'm just trying it's to figure. It's a good question. <clears throat> yeah. Well, the, the, first, the first thing I would say is, many rabbis did get saved, many priests were saved. You know, many. I mean, the first five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand believers in Messiah were Orthodox Jews. So. You know, I, I would not do the monolithic problem mm -hmm. and say, how, how could they possibly miss it? They? Well, you know what? They didn't. They believed it so much that there were enough that we've got Christianity. You know, as as, as problematic as that may be, um, I would I would counter. I, mean, I get your question. I think it's it's a great question because that's the question we always get, right? Um, much of what, uh, especially in the last part of uh, Taylor's uh, presentation here, is before Yeshua was even born. And this passage right? here. So all this stuff, it's obvious they got the fact that vicarious atonement happened and that a guy can do it. They got it. They got it. And they're waiting. Right? They're all looking for the Mashiach. You know, so the, 
uh, Paul says, in a fullness of time, God sent forth his son. Well, what does that mean? I don't think it just means that we had a good road system that led everything to Rome. I, I do think that there was a, a mindset and a mental agreement that we need the Messiah. So I, I think all in all, if we look now to see, as, as Greg said earlier, we've actually got orthodox Jews, orthodox rabbis who believe in Messiah Yeshua, I think we need to turn the question around and say, how is it that there's so many Christians that just don't get the fact that the Master said that if you keep my commandments, you love me. If you, and if you do love me, you're going to keep my commandments. You know, and they have the Holy Spirit. And all yeah, they got the whole package, right? They got the Messiah, they got the, the Spirit, they got it all. And yet, they miss the fact that God wants us to change our lives from being sinners to being righteous men. And you define what righteousness looks like. I, I would turn the, 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 the question on its head and ask those same people that same question. Right, and, God, and not only that, well, uh, hold on, I've got Let's start from 1998. Gotcha. Um, yeah, you stole my thunder because I was going to go there. But, the, I mean, I, I amen to that. So, but I do think there is, ironically enough, or maybe not ironically, uh, there is an atonement aspect to the fact that God, at least in part, according to the scriptures, and you know, Isaiah, Isaiah, um, Isaiah 6 comes to mind here. Uh, where the Lord says to the prophet, go and tell this people, according to Israel, keep on listening, but don't perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, Holy cow. With their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Amen. So, why would God say, why would God speak over his people that they're going to they're gonna hear their, their ears are going to be dull, their eyes are going to be dim because if not, they might return and be healed. 700 years before Messiah came. Right. I would, I would submit that Israel, who were they perfect? Of course not. We have a whole history of how they would come to God, fall away, come back, fall away, right? But, because of the merit of their fathers, right, and other righteous men that came, you know, came down through history. They are an atonement for the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Not an eternal atonement, but they, the fact that they are blinded to their own Messiah. For what purpose? So that you and me can see. Amen. That is a picture of what we've been talking about all, all, all night. They are suffering they're suffering without having their Messiah so that we can live. Mm -hmm. To me, that's, that's just incredible. Can I just ask if this goes in line with that from Psalm 118 where the stone of the village rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It's marvelous in our eyes. Mm -hmm. The fact that the stone was rejected that's what is marvelous. This. Yeah, this is the day. Greg actually talked about that earlier. We always sing, this is the day, this is the day. And we just sing it every day. 
No, this is the day that the Lord has made. Is the day that the cornerstone got rejected, and it's a wonderful thing. Why? Yeah, rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the fact that this cornerstone is rejected. Exactly. Why? Well, because of salvation for every single person here. Yeah. That's right. Amen. And Joshua. lest we lest we begin to believe that all of the Orthodox Jews were unsaved throughout history, Rabbi Perlmutter, who was a who, an Orthodox believing Jew who believed in Yeshua, actually believes that there have been many throughout the centuries who are believing secretly. And the proof of that, ironically enough, was not, you know, declarations of faith, but the very Siddur they were writing. Because he was looking at the specifically the Rosh Hashanah um, prayer service and seeing in the prayer book the amazing references to Messiah and and allusions to Messiah. And his name. and, And Yeshua, which means salvation. That the only real, I mean, basically in, in Rabbi Perlmutter's mind, the only way you could come up with that is if you knew who Messiah was. Yeah. So it's not out of the, I mean, we, I think we do the rabbis as all a disservice, a huge disservice, to presume they did not know Messiah. There have been some who openly declared that they rejected Yeshua, or at least they rejected Jesus of the Catholic faith. But there's not necessarily. A, a clear delineation of who was a believer in Yeshua who was not. I think when you look at what they believed that we just spent the last hour looking at, it's hard to argue honestly that most of them were not believers in Yeshua. Maybe they weren't. My point is, the facts almost argue the opposite. Or that they had a problem with our theology. Right. I mean, I would say that most of them probably would have been very comfortable with us, mm-hmm. at least on that level. Yeah, right. I'm just going to say, returning to what you were saying, Brother Joseph, about uh, you know people in the visible expression of the church having Messiah, having the Spirit, and still having blinders on in terms of the truth of the Torah and the hard work that's gone in that many of our sages have uh, brought to us. You know, um, and then with what Brother Greg read, and, and just with the heart aspect. Yeah. It begs the question, well, what's the uh, job of the, of the Holy Spirit? To write the Torah on the heart. Mm-hmm. And yet that aspect of the Spirit seems to be missed in the visible expression of the church. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. confounds me. Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe if... Uh, <laughs> whoever wants to start, especially if, uh, <laughs> I don't know if, if you guys pay attention to what goes on in I do. I know Shalana Joshua does, but I would encourage all of us to stay in tune with that. And so to the extent you do that, then you are aware that uh, that last week, uh, uh, former Chief Spark Rabbi Yolanda Yosef, his memory being for blessing, passed away Um, uh, at the the young age of 93. I say young because there's a lot of sages Past in the last 15 years, but 10, 15 years as senior. Um, nevertheless, uh, you, will, you will know that um, the last week, you know, uh, actually yesterday was the seventh day, the final day of the week of Shiva. But uh, at his funeral, there were uh, estimated approximately 600,000 people attended well, his funeral of Rabbi. Roughly 10%, or a little less than 10%, of the entire nation 
showed up at his funeral. Okay. Um, there is, there is, you know, can't prove it, don't know for sure, but from a source that we know, who would certainly have an opportunity to know, uh, he was a believer in Zayishu. Now, again, I don't know if that's true or not, but to the extent it is true, that's really, really pretty remarkable. And, and uh, his funeral has gone down in the record books yeah. as the largest, uh, most well-attended funeral of any of the sages wow. that have gone before him. Um, and now they're renaming streets and buildings and everything after him all over the country. But, but um, the point is that here is a current modern-day sage that just departed last week who may very well, according to some sources that you potentially know, was a believer in society. Thank you for sharing that. Any other comments on lesson, Gideon's question, or anything else that you want to speak about? I actually have a comment about my question. I, it's, that's, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. No, but, uh, it's, to me, it's amazing. I mean, the reason I ask that question is because I'm like realizing that, especially with what uh, Mr. Upton was just saying, that uh, how amazing it is that it's almost like the Yeshua, or you know, that that there is a stumbling block. Because if there was no stumbling, I would not be saved today. Mm-hmm. So right? you know, it's so easy to look at it the other way and say, you know, these people don't reject the Yeshua, and you know, kind of turn it on them. But yeah. it's, I mean, if you it's almost like you have to look at it in, in, with gratefulness and say mm-hmm. thank you for you know X, Y, and Z not being able to see him the way I see him yet so that I have the opportunity. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something that I'm realizing uh, that is kind of changing a lot just with just my current view on, uh, on all of this basically because it's so easy to just turn a judgmental eye and make it about mm-hmm. you know I have this and they somehow missed it when it's like, well, I mean, it's, it's almost like a miracle to me to see someone that I, I don't know. I don't know specifically people who have said I, I reject Yeshua, but for someone to be as steady to spend hours and hours studying and not see him, you know, it's almost like it has to be something that God is doing. Yeah, and the neat so. part is, you're exactly right. And if that is true, and we know it to be so. It's even more wonderful that he did it to his own people. The people he's in covenant with. The people that he remembers because of their fathers. He allows them to be to to be blinded for us. That's that's astonishing. That reminds me, it's almost like the story of the product of son, except the of son is actually not his son. It's, it's another guy. And yeah, like that. Yeah. You know, the same reaction. Yeah. Mm. It might be a comment in the weeds, but kind of to the same thing with uh, um, the believer who is questioning, you know, turning to some of these sources to get some explanation. Right. Sometimes, you know, might just ask them, why did Yeshua or Jesus have to die? And just poke that a little bit. All of a sudden, they don't really, they don't really know, know why, why he had to do that. You know, it's here that you get the, the understanding as to why I'm asking. What's the background for this idea? Mm. 
sir. And just quickly, even if these sages were vilifying Yeshua or, or so confused they didn't know what they're talking about, look how close they were. I mean, we just went through a pretty detailed discussion of a, a concept uh, that we can use as evidence for our personal faith life. So, so even if they were messed up, look how much we can still learn and we can gain and be grateful for even if they were, even if they were belong. Sure. <laughs> God has still used them right. to preserve the truth. And I think that that's um, especially powerful that when we look at these things, we can actually better understand our faith through what they've said. I mean, like that First John example. I mean, here's a Bible verse that almost makes no sense without the idea of the righteous atoning for the world that comes right. from Judaism. Yeah. You know, go pick a Christian teaching based on Tanakh, mm. and chances are its roots were in Orthodox Judaism. And I think that that is like when this, I mean, look, I, we just went through how many examples? Isaiah 53 is talking about the concepts behind Yeshua. The red heifer is talking about the concepts behind Yeshua. I just thought about tonight that the vestments of the priests are talking about Yeshua. How cool is that? And that was an Orthodox rabbi that pointed that out. They've done all the legwork for us. Actually, Right. He said it's all written about me. Right. So, uh, <laughs> 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 I, I guess just more, I, I kind of like Gideon's question a little bit different as well, and I don't know if this was relating at all, but one of the things that is kind of interesting sometimes, though, is like the, the later rabbis and the later explanations of the things we're talking about and, and sort of the the omission of the idea of a person Messiah. It's kind of like, do we kind of, it seems like we usually overlook that and, and don't really mind too much and use our own mindset to say, oh, well, obviously that's talking about Yeshua. So we, we kind of think that ourselves, but is it is it an issue that they don't necessarily associate it with someone specific when they describe these things? Um, you mean when they talk about vicarious atonement, they're not specifically, at least explicitly in the statement, saying, and this refers to a the personhood of... Right, yeah, and, and not even the originators in the Talmud, but even later commentators on those specific verses. Like the one that you kind of quoted, that was a little bit later, you know, the two varying opinions, one being sort of the masking of any Christian ideas versus like, no, no, this is exactly what I was talking about. Well, the point here is not to prove whether or not a rabbi did or did not know Yeshua. The point is to say, does Judaism have understandings in it of, at least just for the topic at hand, the righteous dying for the unrighteous? That was just one topic. We could have gone through the entire list of Rabbi Federer. Uh, so the structure is not necessarily to find okay, where is the person of Yeshua in here? The, the structure is, at least from my understanding, where do we fit Yeshua into? Do we fit him in? Is this whole concept of the death of Yeshua atoning for us, is this just a Christian invention after the fact? So Rabbi Federer thinks that we believe. That's what he thinks we believe. Or is it a, an ancient structure, an ancient understanding that when we look at Yeshua, or when anyone looks at Yeshua, they say, oh yeah, this is completely fine. We understand this. We understand these ideas. Yeah, the concept of, of vicarious atonement was far before Yeshua, and it's not a Christian idea, it's a deeply rooted Jewish right. theme. So 
what Johnny just said is, is, is what I was going to say. I mean, the bottom line is, in the fullness of time, he sent forth his son who died for us. And tens of thousands of Orthodox Jews and priests and Levites believed he was the Messiah. You can't blame anything about what we believe on the Catholic Church, on a twisting of the scriptures, on some funky stuff that the church or the Gentiles came up with. An Orthodox Jewish rabbi showed up and Orthodox Jews believed that guy's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. That's the bottom line, guys. Yeah. And their ancient writings, even their near history, as you pointed out in the Maccabees, demonstrates that. Remember, we need to recognize Orthodox, Hasid, Reformed Judaism, Conservative, Conservative Judaism, all of that stuff started around the same time that our country started. It's very, very new. We're talking thousands of years ago. And so many Orthodox Jews believe. This is not an argument that we should even touch. Right. The rabbi is playing to a present crowd. And we have found the ancient crowds. We keep emails with lessons to them. Alright, we need to wrap up. You have wives, families, good times. Wine. Wine. <laughs> you don't want to read about the parabellum. No. <laughs> when the rabbis of old take leave of each other at the study hall of Arami, it's Rav. Rav Ami, we just read about him. Yes, that's right. They would say one to the other, You shall see your world in your life, and your end shall be with the life of the world to come, and your hope for many generations. May your heart ponder and achieve understanding. May your mouth speak wisdom, and your tongue bring forth song, and your eyelids look straight before you. May your eyes be enlightened by the light of Torah, and may your face shine like the brightness of the sky. May your lips utter knowledge and your kidneys rejoice in righteousness and your feet run to hear the words of the Ancient of Days. Amen. Amen. Amen.